Every human being has creativity within, but not everyone feels the call to be an artist. An artist is someone who answers the call to create again and again, and there's beauty and value in that because if to be human is to be creative, who better to learn about creativity than from working artists? I'm your host, Mandy Harmon, a film director, creative marketer, and sometimes with my teeth gritted, consider myself an artist. This is not an interview podcast. Artbreakers is a conversation podcast. Conversing with me in Artbreakers episodes are mostly full-time creative artists of all kinds. Artbreakers aims to share with you the kind of vulnerability that deepens your creative work in meaningful ways, whether or not you identify as an artist. In this episode, I chat with Nancy Rivera, a visual artist, curator, and arts administrator based in Salt Lake City, Utah. As an artist, she works primarily in the fields of photography, video, sculpture, and installation. Her practice is influenced by her dual cultural identity and its effects, such as code switching, cultural assimilation, and displacement. Her most recent work reflects on her experience as first-generation Mexican-American through her own history of migration, and we spend some time talking about her immigration experience in this episode. Nancy has exhibited nationally in a variety of traditional and non-traditional venues, and her work is part of private and public collections. From 2018 to 2021, she served as board member and vice chair of the Salt Lake City Art Design Board. She was the 2021 National Association of Latino Arts and Cultures Leadership Institute Fellow and currently oversees the visual arts program at the Utah Division of Arts and Museums. I love that she's always experimenting with different mediums and looking at ways to subvert it, such as her still life photography, which you can see at nancyververa.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at underscore nancy underscore Rivera. We talk about the artificial versus reality, AI-generated art, or is it, immigration and originality. Let's get into it with Nancy Rivera. Welcome to Artbreakers, Nancy. I'm super excited to have you on. Tell me a little bit about where you're from. I like to just hop into it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was born in Mexico City, um, and I grew up a couple of hours north from the city. And I lived in Mexico until I was about 12 years old and my family, my parents and I immigrated to Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. Are you um, from a big family, a small family? It's a small family. I have a couple of brothers uh, who live in different countries. And so here it's just my parents and me. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, are you the favorite? I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I can't, I can't ask that. I can't ask that, especially when it's recorded. Right, right, right. Um, but uh, where, where are you in the lineup? I'm the youngest. The youngest. Baby of the family. So do you have a whole bunch of older brothers? Were they like taking care of you, looking out for you? Or did they bully you and you had to stand up for yourself? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, my yeah. oldest brother, there's a 10-year difference between us. And to me, you know, it was always um, a really warm relationship. And then with my middle brother, that was a, a lot more, um, you know, we butted heads a lot. And, yeah. you know, but uh, now in adulthood, um, we have started to see like the similarities between us and it's been interesting to get to know each other as, as adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I found the same thing in my family. I'm the oldest of seven. So I'm in adulthood. My younger siblings, some of them are starting to hit adulthood. And it's like, it's, I get to rediscover who they are, mm -hmm. which is really, and they're, cause they're discovering who they are too. Yeah. And it's very neat. It's really, it's a new experience. And uh, it's nice to, to have siblings that you're close to. It's mm -hmm. just, you know, built in friendships for life. Um, when you were growing up in Mexico City, uh, you know, under 12 years old, were you always, you know, artistically inclined? Were you always, were you playful? Were you imaginative? Did your family support that? I think so. And 
I always think about, my mom's always been very artistic and she, um, she always loved art, mm -hmm. but we lived in a small town um, in the city of Querétaro and it was such a small town that growing up I didn't have access to a museum or even art galleries. That mm -hmm. was like something that I didn't even know, you know, how to have access to. And because of my mother's love of art, she's really who taught me about it. And Did she paint? Did she have kind of... She didn't she... have an artistic practice, but mm -hmm. she, um, you know, for all of my school projects, I always understood, like, on some level, that there was a lot of creativity involved in the way that she approached things and even taking, like, an extra step to make, like, pretty uh, maps, you know, and just, like, different assignments. So there was always an element of creativity within it that I always appreciated as a child. Yeah, following beauty for beauty's sake. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, thinking about the aesthetics of yeah. things. Yeah, and what about your dad? Was he also artistically inclined? No, I think it was really just my mom who, mm -hmm. um, because of, of her um, growing up also, you know, being encouraged to look at art and learn about art, she just kind of brought that with her, and um, she was really just my, my first access to art in, mm -hmm. in many different forms. I think a lot about art in terms of access, because in many ways, to be an artist is a very privileged thing, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's also, at least for a lot of artists who are really you know struggling, as many artists do, they're not necessarily privileged in, in, in that way, right? So at 12 years old, where did, where did you go? Were your family, you said, moved here? Yeah, so we moved um, to Salt Lake City in 1999. And um, that, was, that was a huge change, you know, for a child to be uh, put into a place where you don't really speak the language. I was not fluent at all in English. I had taken English classes at school, but, you know, you learn very, very, very little. Um, so it was just culture shock mm -hmm. and it really took about um I started speaking like fluent English at the six month mark but it really took about a year to like feel immersed and feel that still feels really fast to me it was really fast and I really pushed myself yeah I really didn't like the feeling of uh knowing that people knew that I was different mm -hmm. because I didn't understand them or because I couldn't communicate with them and at that age, all you want to do is fit in. And so I really pushed myself to only hang out with um, my bilingual friends who were fluent in English and that I knew would push me to just learning really fast. And so that was my goal to just like become fluent in English. Mm -hmm. And you did it within a year. That's mm -hmm. impressive. Yeah. And that, that's, that, that shapes you, that's, especially at that age. I remember 12, 13. <laughs> that age that age is a very tough age yeah. because you're starting to turn into a teenager so you're starting to become more adult-like in some ways mm -hmm. but you're also still you still have some childlike innocence in a lot of ways and it's it's awkward especially as a woman right like you start to develop boobs and all the men in your life treat you different in distance or something like that <laughs> maybe that's just uh, projecting my own experience but that, 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 that's what I feel like 12 and 13 is just like an awkward angsty time oh, yeah. And I can't imagine also learning an entire language in that time because you need, you're so desperately want to fit in. That's just, oof, man. Well, kudos to you. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, so 
so you were going to school here, just growing up. Uh, did you take a lot of art classes in high school? Did you continue mm -hmm. to pursue, you know, creativity? I did. I was always really interested in um, in art, and even in Mexico, I was taking some art classes. That was always like what attracted me. You know, our options were music or art, and I knew that I was not mus musically inclined, so I went to art. Yeah. What was what was access like here for you? Because. This is something that drives me absolutely nuts, nuts about the United States is that depending on where you live and your income level, mm -hmm. your access to arts and music programs are vastly different, right? Sometimes absolutely. you look at the east side versus the west side and for some reason the east side's for some reason, east side schools get way more funding than the west side schools or the north and south, you know, you can go anywhere and you see that, you know, one side of the freeway or to or how some people say, you know, one side of the train tracks, they just get totally different access. And that's so frustrating to see, just like, honestly, just the racism go deep into city planning. Mm -hmm. But how, what was your experience like seeing just a, uh, not having as much access in Mexico City versus here? Did you feel like there was, there was there more access for you to, to be more artistic? Yeah, once I entered high school, I went to Taylorsville High. Um, I did realize that there was a certain privilege that I had here that I would not have had access to in Mexico. And um, in high school, I started taking photography and um, as part of like my art. Um, so in high school, there was uh, a dark room that where I learned about photography and I fell in love with it. And that was really the, the first moment when I thought, oh, art can be a career and that's what I want to do but come and it was from, photography that it was photography and that's when you started to fall in love with that what was that yeah. like were you just like did you always take photos of places or things or were you really into people what was um what did you like to take photos of behind the camera at first it was just about learning how to use the camera and it was taking photos of my friends mm -hmm. And so I would just like carry the camera around school and just like snap photos of my friends hanging out. And it was just, it wasn't necessarily that I had an interest in photographing people. It was just about trying to figure out what I could do with this tool. Mm -hmm. um, and the process of developing the film in the dark right, room. Oof, right. That's so fun. And it was so exciting. Yeah. Um, so that's what really attracted me to it. And it was really, yeah, I remember watching in photography class. Um, documentaries about National Geographic photographers and I thought that was so exciting and like mm -hmm. that's what I could do with it. Yeah. Um, you could travel and take pictures of you know exotic animals and exotic places. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the time I wasn't really aware of photography as a contemporary practice and contemporary art. I didn't understand you know that there was a difference and um, I didn't have a lot of exposure to it at the, at the time. So really in my mind, it was just about becoming um, a photojournalist, really. Mm -hmm. um, so that was an interesting transition from high school into college. And that's where um, I really struggled talking my parents into letting me be an artist and, you know, go to college to be an artist. That was a struggle to... I guess make them understand what that meant you know even though my mom was um she loved the arts especially i think because we were immigrants they just wanted me to succeed and to them being an artist 
they did not mean that. My, my brothers are engineers, and so, you know, they really saw something different for me, and I tried out. For like, many parents, art symbolizes instability, right? right? Exactly, and, and, and I get it. I yeah. mean, oftentimes it is, but I really thought that I just wanted to pursue my passion, and if I was forced to do anything else, I would not be successful at it, even if it to them meant that it was the right path. That's a very good point. You're right, because if you are forced to do anything, then it's exhausting and soul-sucking either way. Exactly. <laughs> because you have this call to do something else. Yeah, so I finally um, convinced them to let me go into art. And I remember my mom saying, okay, but whatever you do, you have to be or try to be the best at it. And that always stuck with me. And I really tried to do that, to just really give it my all and see where it took me. Mm -hmm. And excel, deliver a skill set mm -hmm. and a level of expertise that could make you quote unquote successful. Exactly. How, how do you define success for yourself now? I, you know, looking back and, you know, maybe looking ahead, what, is, what does success mean to you? I think that has changed. The meaning of success has changed a lot for me over the last few years. When I was just getting out of grad school um, four or five years ago, it was all about trying to get my work out. But in my mind, being successful meant, you know, someday I will have my name up on a museum wall. And that was the goal. Mm -hmm. And it actually happened fairly quickly. I, I got my first museum solo exhibition um, through UMOCA, the Utah Museum of Contemporary Arts. Um, after completing a, um, an artist in residency um, there in 2018. How did that feel and how did your parents feel about it? It was amazing. It was, yeah. a, it was an amazing experience. And by that time, I'd had a lot of experience exhibiting my work, um, but not at that level. And so it, hitting that milestone, I realized it wasn't so much about the, you know, meeting like all of those steps that I thought were important to call yourself an artist, but it was more about simply producing work and mm -hmm. being successful when no matter what, you can still motivate yourself to get in the studio and produce something even when you're outside of um, the safe space of school or a residency. And so now the way that I view success is those small steps to continue to try to be creative. Mm -hmm. Early on, when you're talking about just doing it, just making the work, putting in the work, making the creation, what was that process like for you? And has that gotten easier for you as time's gone on? You know, after you've, you know, hit certain milestones of success, you know, early starting out, people face a lot of imposter syndrome and, and there tends to be this cycle, right? No matter yeah. how, quote unquote, successful you get or how big an artist gets, that, uh, that voice, that critic, that censor just gets louder and more sneaky in different ways. I'm sure, I'm sure that happens, but I am curious uh, what that was like for you at the beginning versus now. Yeah, uh, I don't think much has changed in that regard. How, I, I mean, I do feel more confident in my work. Because mm -hmm. it speaks but, for itself. It's, yeah. it's, it's gotten there. Right. Um, and there's, you know, I've received a lot of validation, which... You know, unfortunately, that is something that artists need to feel that your art is successful and that it's working. Tell, tell me more about that, because creatively, there's this one idea that you just make it for you. 
And I do agree with that to a point um, because, you know, on one hand, if you're not making it for you first, then if you're making it for someone else, that's just going to lose power. And uh, at that point, you're just, you're kind of, it's almost like marketing. You're just like selling for someone else, you know, mm-hmm. and since I've been in marketing for a while, I, I know how that goes. Um, but there has to also be value in developing your own taste because that is eventually what people will come to you for is your own vision, your own ideas and your own taste. How do you strike that balance in appreciating the validation when you get it, but not letting it take over? I think that every project that I created so far has always been because it's something that deeply interests me or that I want to explore. And it's always about what it means to me. However, the validation that I receive from a successful project really helps me feel that I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. And I've never felt pressured to create something because of somebody else's opinion of the work. But it's been helpful in pushing me to continue creating, knowing that um, people like the work and people see something that they that resonates with them, and that that helps me continue to to you know get in the studio. Like you're creating something that hasn't yet been created before, right? Do you ever get obsessed with the idea of originality? Yeah, all the time. I I, I feel like I can. I take a look at your work and I do feel like it's very refreshing. It's very original. I ask if you've ever gotten obsessed with originality because I know that that was something. I've definitely been obsessed with that before because I had this fear of the cliche. Because I'm like, I don't want to make something that's been made before. I don't want to uh, make something predictable. You know, you want to bring something refreshing. But sometimes that that thought process can be so paralyzing to just making something, Mm -hmm. right? And, And allowing yourself to refine it and change it and adjust it. But I look at your art, I look at your work. You use photography as a tool for capturing images of, of not just images. And that's, and I wanna go into more of what that is for you. Um, and to kind of, it's always a little tricky to explain a visual medium on an audio podcast, but well, you, you talk about it. You'll talk about it more <laughs> than I will. Yeah, so my work, um, you know, I've considered it as being photography based, however, Within that idea, I like to push the boundaries of what photography means to me. Uh, one of my recent projects is started out thinking about my, my history as an immigrant and how I could translate that story into a visual work. And when I really started thinking about what are the things that tell that story for me and about me, I realized that, you know, I always kept a thorough archive of um, every ID and every passport that I've ever used. And you have to, especially when you're going through the immigration right. process. I mean, you have to be very thorough in what you present um, as documentation when you're going through the process of immigration. Um, I became a, nat- a naturalist citizen um, in 2017. Congratulations. And thank you. And That, that, is, was... that, that is a long arduous road. It, it, it was, and it was very stressful. One of your artworks, um, you have photos of various uh, cross-stitch images of your family um, and also an image of a social security card. Uh, that kind of plays into this whole theme that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yeah, and it's part of an ongoing project, and the reason I began this project is when I became a naturalized citizen, um, 
I realized that I finally felt safe to tell that story. And I really made it to the other side. Right, right. Because you can't speak up when you're in the process because if that, if you quote unquote cause any issues, Mm -hmm. that puts the process at danger at risk, right? Yeah. And I mean, things have changed a lot. I think people are, feel empowered to be more outspoken about being undocumented or being on DACA. And at the time that I was here as a teenager, it was, it was not, that was not at all the sentiment and my experience you had to be very quiet and there was always this underlying like fear that anyone could find out and suddenly we could be deported and your whole Um, life changes because you build lives here yeah and i and just to clarify i was i lived here undocumented from 1999 to um 2011 when i received my residency and that time it was very stressful and as a child i understood just you know how delicate our situation was here and there was a fear about what that meant for my family and so it really wasn't until i was i felt safe in being having um, legal documents to be able to share that and it the reason I started creating this work, it was not really to talk about immigration, even though that is part of the conversation, but it was it's more about the way that I view my identity through the process that I've had to go through, through being undocumented and now trying to really own that I am Mexican American and what that means. Mm-hmm. Some people might look at that and call and call it, you know, art activism, but you look at it and you just call it this is me. Right. It's just personal. Mm -hmm. So you're in college, you've convinced your family that you're, you know, you want to get a degree in in art and photography. And now you have a master's. And uh, what kind of happened after that? So after I got my master's, I realized that that was a really crucial moment where I could either really make it as an artist or that would be the end of that. Because it is very difficult once you lose the resources that school offers to continue with your practice. Um, yeah, you, after, no longer have a, you no longer have a dark room. Exactly, yes. You, you don't have any of those um, resources. And I didn't have a studio when I graduated. So I was really quick to, to think of what could I do next to really keep me motivated. And so that's when I applied for the UMOCA residency that um, I received about a year after graduating. And that offers you 24 access to a studio, which was essential in in being able to continue creating. And it really, really helped me not lose momentum. How can an artist be an artist without her tools? Right. Was your first initial artworks um, revolving around identity um, or did that come later? That came later. In grad school, I was really interested in the idea of the real versus the artificial. And it was just something that I thought fascinated me, which it did and it still does. But now looking back, I can see how it's all related. And in some ways, subconsciously, there was something there about that work that still was speaking to my experience as being um, bicultural. Tell me more of this real versus the artificial concept. I think of um, Magritte, the treachery of images, right? Mm-hmm. He has this this image of a pipe and underneath it says, this is not a pipe, right? right? And that's, I think, a classic example of uh, an image of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, is that kind of related to uh, your own concept 
of photography. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah, exactly. Photography has you know, um, you think about what it is, and it's a representation of reality, but it's only a snapshot, a moment in time, right? So, so is it artificial or real? Right, exactly. So that's a question in in and of itself. But really, what interested me was thinking about things, objects that we see in our everyday life that we may not really think about and we may not think about its background or why it exists, but just looking a little bit deeper and um, just exploring that aspect of things. How so? One of my earlier projects was a series of cyanotypes. And are you familiar with the cyanotype process? No, I'm not. It's a very old 19, late 19th century process of photography that um, some scientists used to document their findings, like botanical findings. And so it has a long history in, you know, photography. So you, you coat the paper with um, light sensitive um, uh, chemicals that you expose in the sun. And then the, the image actually turns a deep cyan color. Mm. And it's just really beautiful as uh, just aesthetically. I saw your work. It is beautiful. Yeah. That, that color cannot be replicated. It's I beautiful. Think. Yeah. And really, I started thinking about the history of the process, which, again, was used by in botanical um, findings. And I was thinking about the way that those images can be read in different ways, depending on the subject or object that you are utilizing to create that work. And I started bringing in um, artificial um, leaves into my studio and playing around with them and I realized that through the process of cyanotype you know that line between a real and artificial is blurred and you can't tell where this um, leaf came from yeah you and can't I, tell if it's a real leaf or exactly. if it's an artificial leaf so I find I found that really fascinating and I just kind of ran with it and created a very large series of that work mm -hmm. just exploring that idea Something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and this is kind of tangential but still related to this, is AI-generated art. Mm -hmm. Because uh, there was an AI-generated painting that sold for like almost half a million last year. Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with this. And uh, I, it pains me, <laughs> to be honest, because for me, I feel like creativity is so human. Um, that I, I get some heartburn over AI-generated art because then I'm like, well, what's the point? Mm -hmm. And it makes me question a few things. I ask a lot of questions. What it makes me want to ask is, what's the purpose of art? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what, uh, what I think is more interesting about AI-generated art is less about the artwork and more about our human reaction to it. Mm -hmm. um, because that is where I guess the interpretation and the, uh, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around it, to be honest, because it just doesn't, I, I feel like it lacks heart. Mm -hmm. It lacks intuition. Um, but at the same time, that almost doesn't, I don't know. It just, I just don't know what it means yet. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, what, do you have thoughts on this? That's, I mean, it's really interesting the way the, the, you know, you expressing that it's more about the human reaction to that work. I think it's similar to the way that I think about the objects that I've used in my work, like what is the human reaction to an artificial plant? And again, I'm really interested in those moments of thinking about um, objects that we encounter 
and that we may have really strong opinions about, but just thinking about why they even exist mm -hmm. and what role they play yeah. in, in our lives. And I guess that's what I think about. Like, are, do people look at this AR-generated artwork and are they moved by it? Right. And that would tell me more about whether or not it's art than the piece itself because the piece itself, to me, just... I mean, I mean, they did, they did, they did a test, right, where they had human artwork, human-generated artwork. <laughs> that sounds odd to say, but... Hum, you know, something human made versus something AI generated. Yeah. And the viewers couldn't tell the difference. Wow. They couldn't tell the difference. And and I am trying to figure out how to deal with this one because I I I don't know if I I don't know if I'm concerned with whether or not that's art or not, and but I'm more concerned about what that says about us as an audience perceiving Definitely. it. Do you have thoughts on this? Because that 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 is like, is it artificial or real all over? That's got yeah. that written all over it. It does. And it's so fascinating. And I think it makes me think about people's reaction to contemporary art. And often it's so easily dismissed. And people say, I could have made that. My three-year-old could make that. And so then when you're presenting them with this, you know, a computer generated yeah, yeah that's that's such an interesting reaction to have and it really just makes me wonder like what of it are they valuing or you know what is speaking to them mm -hmm. and is that and is that what makes i mean uh, that's an, always an ongoing conversation slash debate you know the art comes in through the artist and the audience right perceiving it and experiencing it uh but when when all of a sudden there's no artist, it's 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 an AI generated piece. Mm -hmm. I just have a hard time. I have a hard time wanting to engage with that, yeah. to be honest, because to me, I, I I feel like what draws me to art is when I know a piece of personality behind it, when I know a piece of imperfection or human story behind it, or something that makes it a little gritty and grimier. And I know visually it can look that way, mm -hmm. AI generated, you know, where they. They pull in all the best pieces of art that they could find online and they make its own original coded piece. But that doesn't mean anything to me. That feels so meaningless. And then it just makes me think of, well, maybe artificiality is fine if you give it that meaning. Does that make sense? It does. And it makes me question the purpose of it. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it does. It makes me question the purpose too. I, 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 because I think that the purpose is is the process of creating mm -hmm. ultimately from human mm -hmm. humans. I think. Yeah. I feel like I want to be protective of that, um, but I don't know. That's this is an ongoing thing I have in my mind because <laughs> uh, we're getting into this whole new world of the more and more the reality of life gets moved on into this virtual world and yeah. I, I honestly want less time in a virtual world I'd rather have more quality time on the virtual world I already have to spend in absolutely um there isn't one straight answer to this you know AI generated art question that or all the questions and surrounding questions that it brings up but uh when you're talking about the real and artificial that is something that it makes me think of this real and artificial question you also address in some of your other work. You take images of still life flowers, um, which is you said was inspired by uh, kind of you know golden age Dutch yeah. Baroque fifteenth century 
uh, still lifes, right? Yeah. Is there is there a particular artist that um, I've got a couple written down here? Jan Bruegel, the Elder, which oh, has a so lot close, of yeah. floral. Is that close? <laughs> That's that? very close. Um, the name of the artist is actually um, Jean Van Heusen. I think I'm saying it right. Mm -hmm. Um, I always just read it, you know, if you read yeah, it and never yeah, say it, then exactly. it's a toss-up. Carry mm -hmm. on. So he's a 15th century Dutch still life painter, very famous for those type of like very lush still lives of flowers. And his work was and has been referred to as illusions because it would take him years to complete a painting. He would wait until certain flowers were in bloom or available to him to put them into um, the, the paintings that he was creating. And that idea really stuck with me. And, you know, I had it in the back of my mind, but I wasn't sure how to approach it. And then one day I came upon um, an exhibition that um, uh, a museum in London put together of four of his works. But the cool thing about it is that I found this amazing little catalog that they made for the exhibition. Inside it, um, each of the four still lives identified all of the flowers that he used mm -hmm. and I started realizing that I could very easily find those flowers in their artificial form and I just kind of set out to figure it out and that became that project um, Impossible Bouquets and it was really very much about the duality of things and thinking about mass production, our axes, our um, because you could make that at any time. Exactly. Right? Uh, if, if the 15th century Dutch painter was waiting for flowers to be in season, he was sure. waiting for a reality to come around mm -hmm. in order to make his painting, which was an artificial reproduction of the flowers right. in a way. Right. But you are commentating on using artificial flowers in, in a real image. Yeah. And so in that way, they were also illusions. And mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that play between the two, um, between me and, you know, his artwork. And I also see this idea carrying on to my more personal work that talks about immigration, because that real versus artificial is really talking about uh, authenticity and how we view authenticity um, in, you know, objects, but also people. And to me, the idea of um, I really American, can I really own that, you know, term? How does that, you know, um, how can I explore that more? And so that's how I see it carrying through the work. Mm -hmm. Did that change for you once you became a naturalized citizen? Did that, did that finally feel real? It did. And because I'm someone still... is gatekeeping that, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I'm still, you know, trying to figure out what that means yeah. for me. But, um, it is something that I'm aware of, and I, I, because it is and has been such a big part of my life, mm -hmm. I think that it made sense for me to make art that was more personal and that was dealing with different types of issues around that same idea. Mm -hmm. And the duality of your American identity mixed with your Mexican identity, right? right. Mm -hmm. Art as authenticity, what is that for you? Can you elaborate more on how you think that plays together? I think it really comes through the concepts in my work and it's really about thinking, you know, with the flower still lives, it was about um, the authenticity of, of the work. I mean, we, there's just a lot of conversations that could come out of that work. You know, we think about and value a painting in a very different way that we do photography and that has been a long conversation in our history. 
So this idea of, you know, the authenticity of an artwork is you know, something that plays into that specific work. And it's an interesting question, um, especially when reproducing these pieces um, through digital photography. As we're talking about authenticity in art, this brings me back to the AI-generated artwork because that lacks authenticity. Mm -hmm. And because it lacks vulnerability, because it's not saying anything. And not that it has to say something because, you know, an artist can, can be saying one thing and then someone can look at it and interpret it very differently. Where I kind of want to lead next is, uh, You've gotten vulnerable and more personal as you matured as an artist um, because your creations are now more tied with your identity. How do you, as an art appreciator as well, because you're also a curator, mm -hmm. you know, you're very involved in the, in the traditional art world, how do you apply that authenticity to appreciating art? I think a lot about uh, the artist's experience and how it translates into the artwork that they're creating and how there's... A strong connection or you know not all art needs to be personal but I think that there does need to be a strong intention and meaning behind the work and that's what attracts me to it so I'm always really interested in hearing what the artist attempted attempted to do or what their intention was and um, so I like to leave room for interpretation in my own work and the work of other artists but I always do appreciate when an artist can speak really well about their work and um, I just enjoy having those conversations with them as well. What do you think about art? Does art always have to be serious or can it be fun and playful and it still have that meaning? I love when there's playfulness within art and I think that some of my earlier works also have a you know a sense of playfulness and I think it's 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 okay to be um, playful and not take things too seriously but um, lately because the work is more personal it becomes more serious yeah. and, and you I, put more pressure on yourself right. too because you want to do right by that vulnerability exactly but that's okay too right I think there's just different facets of creating art and I think that different projects go for different things and I just kind of go with flow of you know what that specific project is, is asking for. Mm -hmm. Before we started recording you mentioned how you're somewhat protective of the term artist. Can you tell me more I mean you come from a, a traditional art world but at the same time that that is the aspiration of art in many ways. Mm -hmm. Art is very tied to academics, to politics, to technology. It's 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 so to religion. It's so immersive in, across so many disciplines. Um, but I, I I guess where I'm where I'm heading with this is, how would you define what makes an artist? I think that's a really broad. You know, that would be a really broad answer. And I think that coming from you know as someone who went to school and has an mfa in art i am really aware of my bias when it comes to acknowledging someone or something as art or an artist mm -hmm. and in some ways the way that we have talked about it in that you know academia is can be really gatekeeping 
Yeah. Um, and, and but there's almost has to be a balance with that because you know an artist can you know be be traditionally educated mm -hmm. and they create for the academy, but then they can also create for the the masses, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then but then also ultimately they're trying they have to create for themselves. Right. So how do you, yeah, that's just, it's a, it's a complicated mm -hmm. balance. And I think a lot about, you know, self-taught artists and in school, you learn about them through the lens of outsider art, which now, you know, as, as, you know, as I have thought about it more, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, why are we putting them in a completely different category? just because they don't have and share that same background. And so it's an interesting conversation. And in my work as an arts administrator and creating opportunities for really any artist at any stage of their career, I really want to remain open-minded about who we consider to be an artist. And that can be really hard um, because we have certain expectations for what the work should look like, mm -hmm. the things that it should, should talk about and and an understanding of how it fits into the grand scheme of art in right, general, right? Right. From an academic mindset, right? Yeah. Because that's what kind of defines the history and in many ways the value of it. Mm -hmm. So which which is a mixed bag, right? Because a, mixed a lot bag. of artists like that we learn about in school didn't go to school and they didn't um, follow any traditional path. They did their own thing. Mm -hmm. And they didn't, maybe didn't even get recognized for it until after they were dead. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah. it's, yeah, I guess that kind of loops me back to that question. Like when you're making art for you, you do make it for you, but you should share it. Exactly. You know? And it, it does have to, that audience does matter. Yeah. Which and drives me crazy sometimes, but it does. Yeah. You know, that brings up a good question. Is something creative, does it just become art when your intention is for it to be public? And I think that that may be part of it, right? And I always create things with the audience in mind. And I know that not every artist does that, but I think that final intention of the work being out and being seen is what elevates something to it being seen as, as artwork. So that's a, a conversation that I really um, you know, think about a lot. And for me, I, the presence and idea of an audience is important in the creation of the work. Fantastic. <laughs> Those are great thoughts. This is kind of jumping back a little bit. Uh, you know, originality versus cliche. Sometimes, especially maybe early on, I don't know if this was an issue for you, but there can be this paralyzing thought like, oh, everything's been done before. Mm -hmm. um, where I've kind of arrived at now is that I don't think that a single idea is necessarily original, but originality comes through the amalgamation of multiple ideas and the execution of those ideas. Uh, there's a, a quote by actor James Stevens, and I have to admit, I've never actually seen anything he's ever been in, but uh, the quote is about originality, and he says, originality does not consist in saying what no one has ever said before, but in saying exactly what you think yourself. And that, I think, if that is the core of what, draw, of what starts or sparks a project or a piece or an artwork or anything creative, then whether or not that ends up being something more playful or just an self-expression um, or whether it becomes more quote unquote serious and gets delivered to an audience, uh, I think that there is value in it either way. Yeah, and I, I... 
you know, originality to me has always been about making sure that my vision is coming through and I guess finding safety in the idea that the thoughts that I have and the ideas that I have are my own and that in itself is original and but there's still you know I, I worry a lot about repeating myself or not being challenged by the ideas that I come up with at the same time being too ambitious can often be paralyzing for me because I don't know where to start what are you what are the most common fr frustrations that you personally experience in your artistic process so far every project that I've created involves a media or medium that I am not familiar with and so there's also you know I have to learn how to create something or how to approach something and that it's that takes time and that takes effort and that can be really um yeah paralyzing in, in knowing where do I go from here like I have this great idea but I need to understand this process first and I think I can easily become obsessed with getting good and great at that little thing that you know I need to create a larger you know project do you ever get obsessed with the idea of making something good that it just stops you from making it yeah. or all yeah. the time yeah oh that's so frustrating yeah especially because if your taste is up here again bridging that gap you know and and I mean your taste can always challenge you I mean you know when you hit it then maybe your taste rises even more yeah. you know because you're always as aspiring to something but uh, that is such a frustrating process. I find that if you go into the, the very beginning, blossoming start of a project with the, with the question, is this any good? It will, it will paralyze you from making it. Absolutely. I it's mean, not very helpful. Nothing kills an idea like, is this any good or not? You right. Know? And I think that most things never, are never successful in the first try. And I find that there is always, you know, you have to try a few times before you get it right. And yet that's been something really hard for me to get past and to understand that it's part of the process. So you talk a lot about meaning and originality and experimentation, a lot of these, and, you know, and, and developing something more personal and making something good. That's something important to you, especially because you, you know, you do curate other art, so you're very uh, in tune with what other people define as good or great. How does that play into what kind of impact you want to have as an artist yourself? I think it comes down to wanting to create something that is meaningful and resonates with whoever interacts with it. And, you know, art what you create is not will not always be for everyone but for me if there is even just one person that connects with the work that makes it worth it i a lot of my inspiration comes from seeing other work that's being produced but not necessarily art i've always been really influenced by film and music and the ways in which it explores and deals with um, certain issues. You've gathered a lot of inspiration from being an art appreciator mm -hmm. as well as an artist yourself. 
along this journey, did you have any other mentors that inspired you or helped teach you specifically how to, I don't know, kind of get where you are at now? Yes and no. I think that, you know, school itself really served that purpose in a lot of ways, but I didn't have a specific mentor that I felt pushed me or taught me something that um, specifically I, I didn't get from, you know, any other source. It was until much later, just recently, that I've felt that there are people that I've been able to call mentors. And the way that that's shaped my practice is the way in which they pushed me to think deeper about the ideas that I wanted to explore and to be really thoughtful about having a good reason for why you're making the art that you're making. Um, I always look to, you know, Cindy Sherman is someone that is huge for me. She was the artist through whose work really taught me what being an artist who used photography meant. And even though my art looks nothing like Cindy Sherman's, I've taken a lot of inspiration from the way that she approaches art. And in some ways, I think, you know, her work is about um, creating characters and thinking about authenticity. And so, yeah, maybe, you know, that influence is a a lot more present than I thought. Did you have to unlearn or replace uh, something that you did learn to get where you are now? I think so. And I think it was mainly about letting go of um, certain things that were taught to us or, you know, even simply the fact that I went to school um, locally. I got my master's from the EO. And for a long time, that conversation as an undergrad was if you're not, you know, going to grad school to Yale, will you really be a professional artist? And that was really um, disappointing. And it really created a barrier at that time because I knew that I didn't really have access to go to Yale for grad school. But um, the majority of people don't. Exactly. But that didn't invalidate my... um, my aspiration to become an artist and, you know, to try to find a different way to do so and be successful at it. What would you tell someone like maybe you 10 years ago or someone like you who is maybe pursuing a similar path? What would you tell them that you wish you had known then? Which, I mean, you are who you are now because of all the steps that you've taken. So this isn't like a, if you could go back in time situation, mm-hmm. but more like a pay it forward to the future generation of artists potentially listening to this podcast, um, or at least the three people, uh, there's more than three, but, <laughs> but at least the three people listening. Um, what would you kind of share with the world your, your artistic message? I think it's about not being discouraged by rejection as an artist, you face so much rejection and it's easy to take it very personal. And it's hard to get past that, but um, if you want to be an artist, you have to acknowledge that that is part of that world. And if you really want this, you have to be aware that you will face those challenges and you will get a lot of no's. 
but if if it means something to you you keep going and you build a community around you that will support you and that in itself like really really helps you continue to to create and and to find a space for your work to to thrive in dealing with rejection you mentioned a community do you have like an inner circle of those that you trust who you know support you who uh you know you respect what they have to say both in feedback but also in hyping you up about your work uh how do you have something like that i do i'm really lucky in the sense that i do have a great support system from um, my husband to really close friends who are also artists or um are in the arts is your husband an artist as well he is he's a writer oh, and musician fantastic. yeah so do you guys play off each other are you able to talk about each other's ideas and I, he's, he's my sounding board yeah. I, I it's been really really you know great for me to have someone who understands art in the way that he does mm-hmm. and he appreciates it and um I will you know tell him what my ideas are and he's very honest and he'll be like you're on the right track mm-hmm. and um as a writer he's been so helpful in letting me or teaching me about writing about my art and writing about it in a way that makes sense and to really explore what my intention is and how to how to ex- explain that nothing can replace that i mean to have someone in your corner like that at Pepe, you know, my partner, he's mm-hmm. also a filmmaker and both of us being filmmakers and both of us being directors even, you know, if we're working on a project together, we have to have very defined roles. Like you're directing this yes. one, you know, I'm taking a different role. I'm I'm your producer or cinematographer or art director or something. Um, but to have like a sounding board like that, nothing nothing can replace that. That yeah. is just so vital to, to um to the creative journey because you do you do need a collaborator every now and then yeah you know you exactly. do need someone to share your ideas with that can help you bring those ideas to life and help them bloom mm-hmm. nancy thank you so much for thank coming you. on today this has been a really insightful episode i i really enjoy talking about the real versus the artificial with you among the many other things that yeah. we discussed yeah thank you this was great thank you for having me i appreciate it thank you keep up with our breakers follow us at our breakers podcast on instagram and check out the show notes at artbreakerspodcast.com episodes released bi-weekly every other tuesday and there's much much more to come in the words of comedian and cartoonist dimitri martin earth without art would just be eh thank you for tuning in to art breakers Art breakers.